This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, the misconceptions of electroconvulsive therapy, the ones about painful convulsions, broken bones, and no anesthesia. I spend a lot of extra time trying to help patients understand what ECT is not. What they see in the movies is not at all what happens in real life. Electroshock treatments today when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. If trauma doesn't come then, if that kind of injury to us doesn't come during young adulthood and midlife, it will definitely come if we're lucky enough to grow old. Trauma just another part of life. Then... I found that with touch, my ability to feel you, see you, sense what's happening for you if you carry tension or stress in certain areas in your bodies, I can interpret that. The benefits of being cuddled. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Major depressive disorder affects more than 16 million American adults in any given year. As much as 30% of the time, antidepressant treatments fail to work. But in thinking about what to do next, often doctors leave an effective treatment on the table without even trying it, electroconvulsive therapy. ECT was developed in 1938, and while there have been improvements along the way, 80 years later, it's still used to treat patients. ECT is used for the treatment of depression and other serious neuropsychiatric conditions. It is rapidly effective in alleviating depression. It's rapidly effective in resolving suicidal ideation. And it really can be a lifesaver among our most severely depressed individuals. That's Dr. Sarah Lisenby, Director of Translation Research at the National Institute of Mental Health, where she also directs the Non-Invasive Neuromodulation Unit. During ECT, an electrical current is passed into the brain of a sedated patient. That alone has been enough to make many people call it electroshock, with the reputation of painful convulsions and broken bones. But Lisenby says the environment of an ECT procedure is much more relaxed than you might think. The first thing, let's say, I was explaining to you what was going to happen when you got an ECT treatment, you would walk into a medical procedure room, you would lie down on a stretcher, you would have an intravenous line, which is the plastic catheter that allows us to inject the anesthesia. You are monitored, your vital signs are being monitored, you're in the presence of physicians and nurses who are expert in providing ECT and expert in providing anesthesia. And once everything is in place, the anesthesia is injected and you go to sleep. And you wake up when the procedure's over. You're asleep for maybe about 15 minutes. And during that time, a small controlled amount of electricity is applied to the scalp and that induces a brief seizure lasting typically no more than a minute. And during that seizure, the only thing that you really see happening is based on the brain waves. So we put sensors on the forehead so that we can see the seizure activity going on in the brain, but the body isn't moving. Everything looks relaxed. But while the body is relaxed, there's a lot going on in the brain. 
Research tools such as functional brain imaging have allowed doctors to learn that ECT can be one of the most beneficial treatments a depressed person can receive. We know that it releases all of the brain's major neurotransmitters, which are the chemical signals that neurons use to talk to one another. And these neurotransmitters are also affected by our antidepressant medications, but to a lesser degree. ECT is robust and more potent in its effect on neurotransmitter release than medications. And this increased potency may in part explain why it works much more effectively than our medications and why it works so rapidly. In fact, ECT has the highest response and remission rate of any FDA-approved treatment for depression. Yes, it works on most people. I'm talking about remission rates upwards of 70 to 80 percent. Whereas medications typically have remission rates in clinical trials closer to 30%. The term treatment-resistant depression, which is used to describe situations where a medication or a series of medications have been tried and don't work, that's actually the majority of cases of depression because the antidepressant medications don't work for such high numbers. And even in those situations of treatment-resistant depression, ECT remains the most effective and rapidly acting treatment in that condition. So it, it's really a vital part of our standard treatment for our most severe cases of depression. But despite the effectiveness of ECT, a lack of understanding and those old gruesome images portrayed in movies have created a stigma that scares patients and even physicians away though this treatment literally saves lives. Another big issue is the stigma of ECT you know, still persists, you know, after you know, decades of it being shown a very effective strategy for severe depression. So in my practice, we tend to spend a lot of time with patients and families trying to assuage a lot of their fears and anxieties about what the treatment is, what it is not, and try to do a lot of reassurance and education about the treatment. Yeah, it's a very calm environment, you know, where patients are treated and people are under anesthesia. They don't feel any pain. They, you know, there's no violent convulsions and things like that. That's Dr. Dan Maxner, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan. Just like any other serious medical procedure, there are side effects from receiving ECT treatment. With conventional ECT, most people have some degree of memory loss. And I'd like to explain some about the types of memory loss. So we can think of it in two types of memory. One is the ability to learn new things, and the other is the ability to remember things you've already learned. So these are called anterograde amnesia and retrograde amnesia. So anterograde meaning going into the future. Everybody that has ECT has some degree of anterograde amnesia, meaning while they're getting the treatment, they have an impaired ability to learn new things. For example, Let's say a person had ECT on a Friday morning and they went out to lunch with their family on that afternoon. They might not remember the details of that lunch they had after the ECT. However, when ECT is stopped, when you finish having your course of ECT or when you transition to maintenance where the treatments are less frequent, that ability to lay down new memories returns. But that problem is much less likely today. Now you wouldn't receive the same ECT treatment your grandfather might have. ECT today is used in specific ways that help minimize memory loss following treatment. There are ways that we do ECT these days and have continued to 
work on other strategies with how the electrical stimulus is administered, and there's ways for us to limit the memory side effects. And one strategy is using right unilateral ECT, where we stimulate just one side of the head to start the seizure. The whole brain still gets excited and has a full seizure, but stimulating just the right side of the head to start the seizure, we avoid stimulating the left side of the brain where there's, for most people, their verbal memory sits, and you disrupt that a lot less with the right unilateral treatment. But that doesn't mean ECT would be the first treatment your doctor would try. Experts say it's difficult to determine what kind of treatment to use and when. Maxner's new study suggests using ECT as a third line of treatment if options such as medication fail to help. That's different than it's often used now. Typically, ECT is a treatment that many consider a last resort. In our practice, ECT isn't necessarily ever a last resort. In the right scenario, just like I mentioned with patients who might be in a life-threatening condition, ECT can actually move ahead of that last resort notion and be used much sooner. Patients may be, you know, again, very psychiatrically ill, either medically ill or dangerously ill, where suicidal thoughts or behaviors may be overriding the thought of waiting for medication or other strategies to work. So in general, though, ECT tends to be a later stage type of treatment. There are multiple reasons that can lead to ECT being used as a treatment of last resort. Some of these reasons have to do with variable access. There's some parts in the country where you have to travel long distances to find an ECT provider, and there may be limitations in coverage in terms of insurance reimbursement and so on. But I think that probably among the leading causes of ECT being used as a treatment of last resort has to do with stigma. Stigma not only about the treatment itself and also about the side effects that the treatment can cause, particularly memory loss, and stigma about depression and about suicide. The illness and the treatment are both stigmatized in a way that prevents people from receiving the treatment that they need that could really be life-saving. And it may do that very quickly, which is why this form of treatment is important for those who struggle with severe depression and suicidal thoughts. The speed of response of ECT is critical, especially for saving lives. When depression becomes so severe that the person begins to feel that their life isn't worth living, that they'd be better off dead, that their families would be better off without them, and they begin to have thoughts of killing themselves and thinking about ways to do it and assembling the means to act on those ideas, their lives are in jeopardy. And the sooner that ECT, when it's medically indicated, can be given to people who are going down that path, the more likely it is that they will be brought out of that depression and a suicide can be prevented. However, ECT isn't one and done. Follow-up treatment plays a critical role in treating depression long-term with ECT. Depression is like any other medical condition. Let's say you have high blood pressure and you have to take a medication to control your blood pressure. Yes, you'd have to keep on taking that because if you stop that medication, the high blood pressure comes back. It's not that much different when we talk about depression. It is a medical illness that requires longer-term treatment to manage it and to support brain health. An acute course of ECT can induce remission, but it's not permanent. 
And it's critical to have a maintenance treatment to prevent relapse. Depression, we've learned over the years, can become a chronic and relapsing condition where a person may have the depression come back months down the road. And maintenance ECT in combination with medication can be important for preventing relapses. And while ECT is much less likely to produce side effects than it used to, doctors and researchers continue to work on improvement, creating different forms of therapy to solve mental health issues. Magnetic seizure therapy, or MST, we use magnetic fields which pass through the body as if it was transparent, like, you know, from an MRI device, magnetic resonance imaging. We use strong magnetic fields, but they're rapidly alternating. And these magnetic fields induce tiny electrical currents in very focused regions of the brain. This allows us to deposit just a small amount of electricity exactly where we want it to go and spare the rest of the brain. I view MST, magnetic seizure therapy, if successful, as being an additional tool in the toolbox. There may be patients who continue to need ECT, to achieve remission from their depression, but if a form of treatment that had less or even no memory loss, such as MST, could work, who wouldn't want to start there? You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. You'll find archives of our shows there, as well as wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our writer this week is Ariana Kraft. I'm Reed Pence. Now there's even more reason to get flu and pneumonia shots. They may help cut the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Studies reported at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference 2020 show that flu vaccination, especially at a younger age, may cut Alzheimer's prevalence by 17%. And getting a pneumonia vaccine between age 65 and 75 may reduce Alzheimer's risk by up to 40%. Dr. Maria Carrillo is Chief Science Officer of the Alzheimer's Association. Vaccines are at the forefront of public health discussions today, and these new studies suggest that their benefit goes beyond preventing viral or bacterial infections. If these findings can be confirmed in larger and more diverse groups, then taking care of your health by getting vaccinated may also lower your risk of Alzheimer's and other dementia. What's more, growing research is investigating whether infections themselves might worsen or even cause dementia. Find out more at ALZ.org. Supporting immune function through a healthy diet has become an important new focus for many people these days. One key recommendation is to eat more vegetables and fruits, such as grapes, every day to improve immune function. Combining grapes with vegetables can help achieve this goal in a tasty way, according to registered dietitian Courtney Romano, health advisor for the California Table Grape Commission. Fresh grapes are heart-healthy and hydrating and linked to benefits in multiple areas of health, including supporting immune function. Grapes are always a smart snack choice on their own, and they also pair well with other healthy foods, such as vegetables, to enhance flavor and nutrition. Add grapes to a kale, spinach, or arugula salad. Roast grapes with cauliflower or broccoli. Combine grapes with cucumbers and feta for delicious, healthful eating. Grapes from California are a natural source of antioxidants and other polyphenols. Visit grapesfromcalifornia.com for more information and over 300 recipes. What are you going to do with your old car? You can try selling it, you could junk it, or you can donate it to Heritage for the Blind. Your car will be towed away for free and your donation is tax deductible. Just call 1-800-835-1478. Heritage for the Blind accepts cars, vans, trucks, and boats. 
It doesn't matter if your vehicle runs or not. It will be towed away for free, and you'll be supporting those that need help. Heritage for the Blind is a nonprofit organization that helps the visually impaired live fuller lives. Call right now to donate your car, and as a special thank you, you'll receive a free three-day vacation voucher to over 50 locations. Call Heritage for the Blind right now. Call 1-800-835-1478. Donating is easy, and your vehicle is towed away for free. Plus, you'll get a free vacation voucher for donating. Call now, 1-800-835-1478. That's 1-800-835-1478. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Radio Health Journal is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. Not every jurisdiction in the United States can safely open schools right now full-time. Opening schools with all the demands and precautions, is it going to happen? Then dealing with work-at-home burnout and Zoom meeting fatigue. It feels like it's even more exhausting than going to work physically at the office and having the same number of meetings in the day. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. 